So before we get into talking about Fess up, Logan. Fess up to your sins. <laughs> the bell tolls. I need to make a redaction, correction, whatever's the best term to put it. <laughs> confession. For, yeah, confession, I guess. It's not really confession because I'll fight this. No, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm it's on not... your side. I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> I don't give a shit about your family. <laughs> didn't even get to get into what it was about. Just, now it's just the context is out Now there. it's Odd Trilogies versus Logan's family. No. Yes, it is. <laughs> okay, go ahead with your confession. But for the Ninja Turtles in the 90s trilogy episode, I said that my family, at a time, would get Pizza Hut, or just said that they would get Pizza Hut most of the time, in that they never got sausage, and I was fine with that. Turns out, according to my mother, after my dad listening to the podcast, she says I've never told them that sausage was my favorite <laughs> topping, and that they not they don't get Pizza Hut all the time, and they want me to correct that because, and I quote, "It makes us look trashy. We know good pizza, <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. We do eat a lot of good pizza, but there was a specific moment." When you have a family of five, yeah. and you just want pizza, and they want it quick and easy, and even if it's a solid five out of ten, at least it's a consistent right. five it's out of dinner. ten. dinner. They had pizza. Pe- there was just a long period of time where they just got Pizza Hut. I yeah. don't know why, but they did. They sure. don't do it anymore. But sure. I need to clarify, they know good pizza. They don't get Pizza Hut as a go-to anymore. And they never knew that I liked sausage as a primary topping. Even though I'm pretty sure that's not true. They just probably forgot. <laughs> well, was... Logan, I got to tell you, these people sound like real jerks. <laughs> it's my mother, Andy. <laughs> I don't know if she's going to listen to this, but my dad certainly will. So it's going <laughs> to get back to her one way or the other. I'm going to hear about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I just got you in more trouble. No, nah, no, nah, it'll be funny. She'll just like, I'll do an unprompted text being like, why did Andy say that? He's <laughs> like, he's just trying to, he's trying to be the heel in this story. The heel, yeah. But yeah, she was like, I like sausage too. And I was like, yeah, but you get fucking stinky, stinky pizza, pizza all the time. I'm not going to eat I'm not going to eat like black olives or I'm not even going to go into the toppings because I don't want to do another redaction on what she likes on her stinky pizza. Yeah. You just know it's stinky. <laughs> it is just it's just stinky and it's got peppers on it. It's not my thing. I'm more of a one to two topping guy. Yeah. The the important fact is that your mom has poor taste in pizza. <laughs> And that's what you said, word for word. I'm just repeating what you said. Why are you doing this to me? (laughs) This was supposed to be a simple correction, and now it's become much more (laughs) complicated. I dig for the truth, Logan. I bet you do. I bet you do. Let's just get into talking about... Oh, is it roundup time? It's roundup time, but did you want to talk about a specific film we both saw recently? Oh, yeah, we did. I I guess I've aged so much since I saw it that I nearly forgot. But yes, we both actually just uh, the other night saw Old together, the new M. Night Shyamalan film. Yeah, yeah That we was did. a blast. Well, that's an overstatement, but... It's, uh, you know, I mean, I I feel like we should be kind of used to this at this point from him. Uh, I think every time a new Shyamalan movie comes out, people are like, oh, I guess there's a chance that this could be his next Unbreakable. This could be his next Sixth Sense. And it like never is. He could Um, generally, he could genuinely just ride that high until his last film. Oh, yeah. He literally just keeps 
doing this where it's like I hate it old. I thought it was awful, but at the same yeah. time, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Ironically, it's it's definitely and, it's definitely a bad movie. No two ways about it. Yeah. Um. But yeah, your I mean your mileage will vary depending on your like tolerance for weird and bad choices in movies. But I think we both got something out of it. Not necessarily what it wanted us to get out of it, no. but it's it was fun because it was stupid and really weird choices in directing and editing and especially writing. Um, yeah, the, the script is just so uh, gets in, gets in devoid of emotion. Yeah, and just forces exposition at the weirdest times. Yeah, like uh, there's a part in the film where the the lead family, the mom and dad, are fighting, and it's pretty clear that they want to have a divorce. And one of them just says, like, you're always looking towards the past. And the other person says, and you're always looking towards the future. Yeah, it's just kind of every major moment is, like, we have to do it in the most obvious and cliche way. Like, mm-hmm. the, the line has to be written in the most basic, obvious way. It's, like, totally mm-hmm. kind of, uh, I don't know, flying in the face of that old screenwriting adage about, like, never write what they're trying to say, mm-hmm. you know? It looked. It felt like I was expecting every time exposition like that happened, it would just have a hard cut to M Night holding a piece of paper with just another explanation as to what that's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. Because it was just so on the nose, to the point where there's one part in the film where it's actually genuinely good setup, in terms of like early on in the film, there's a little thing you're not thinking about, and then later on it becomes crucial in terms of like survival, and then you're thinking, oh. This is really cool. This is actually genuinely good setup. And then they ruin it by explaining it to yeah. your fucking face. And then it just goes like, well, you just killed it. Yeah. You killed any goodwill you had in that scene and it's gone. Yeah. And I don't know how it's going to do. By the time this episode has come out, it's it's first weekend. Right. When we saw it at the or the early screening we saw it at, everyone was fucking laughing at yeah. like the parts they weren't supposed to be laughing at. Right. To the point where when we were leaving the uh I was gonna say, was it the consultants or like the kind of like the advisors of the screening who Oh, like the reps. Yeah, yeah like the, the reps for the screening. Reps. We came out and I kept hearing people just like constantly be like, I don't fucking understand what the film was supposed to be. It was yeah. so stupid. And then we get up to her and like I felt awkward just saying like I downright didn't like yeah, it, and yeah, then yeah. she looked you right in the face and said, "No, you could be honest. That's why these screeners are here." Yeah, yeah. And I was like, "Okay, thank you." She was so she was so relaxed. <laughs> she was like, "Listen, they've all probably said what you're about to say anyway." Right, right. Well, and it was clear that she didn't get a whole lot out of it either. So, but yeah, I mean, uh, at least yeah. we saw it in Dolby. You know, <laughs> Dolby Cinemas. I don't know why it screened in that, but uh, really I guess my, I'm grateful. Really needed my chair to shake every time someone screamed. Yeah, every time they figured out they aged a little bit more. <laughs> um, no, but yeah, by the time that you would be listening to this, uh, you and I, we both had a little uh, little Yap Talk video with uh, Chris Lloyd, our fellow Film yeah. Yap guy. That aired on Wish TV and should be on the Film Yap website now. Um which is I also wrote the official review on the film Yap for Old, and you, um, you have a Letterbox take on it. So yeah, go, go I, follow Logan on Letterbox. I don't know what you. your handle is on Letterbox. I think it's So Wash Yourself. So Wash Yourself, yeah. It's if you if you're on Letterbox and you look up So Wash Yourself, if you see the picture of Incredibles two and Violet spits like milk out of her nose, <laughs> that is my picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when I saw that in Incredibles two for the first time, I was like, I need, I want that. 
yeah. to be any kind of social media where I don't know what picture <laughs> of my face I want it to be. Right. No, and that's, it's just su- that's such there. a good shot in that <laughs> it's, movie. It's a beautiful shot. So, yeah. So, wash yourself. Follow him on there. I'm Dandable. Rhymes with Mandible, but starts with a D mm-hmm. instead of an M. Check us out. We're on Letterboxd. We occasionally have fun on there. Oh, yeah. It's, it's pretty much what happens is... Andy kind of Andy like logs his diaries pretty recently after review, and then I just like do diary bombs where I go, shit, yeah. I haven't put anything for a while. Let me put four films on yeah. here. I have it done. I do that a little bit too, though. I'll like because I like to put reviews out for all the movies we do on the podcast, um, but I don't put those reviews out until the podcast is out because I want to like kind of use the little letterbox review as sort of a, you know, a, to. Yeah, send yeah, yeah. people back to the podcast and link that up. Um, so I'll like forget that we put out, you know, for the Ninja Turtles, I ended up doing six Ninja Turtles reviews on Letterboxd all in one go because we'd already <laughs> put out two episodes on the Ninja Turtles. It was funny to me because I took, I think last week, I just was like, oh shit, I haven't done that yet. <laughs> I should probably get on to that. Yeah. By the time you guys are listening to this, um, I might have all of my Fear Street diaries up. I might not. Yeah. <laughs> They'll, they'll be up there at some point. I got the first two, so that's something. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, don't go see old in theaters unless you want to laugh. That's yeah, about, that's about I, it. I, I feel like the best way to experience this would be drunken with friends. So yeah. probably wait till it's available at home, which it's, it's f- not because it's one of the rare movies this year that's only available in theaters. It's the funniest blockbuster out right now. Take that as you will. <laughs> All right, it's time for uh, a roundup, because also this week we had four fucking trailers just like oh, yeah. drop out of nowhere. Big trailer week. Yeah, so I guess the first one we'll talk about, because I think the only one I've seen that you haven't is Malignant. Oh, which I've is seen James- it. Oh, you watched it? Yeah, you showed it to me. Oh, oh yeah, we did watch it. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I'm hoping- The dementia's creeping in, Logan. You've <laughs> aged so much since we started this episode. No, I couldn't remember if we actually watched the full trailer or if we paused it. And then we stopped and like we did other stuff. I couldn't remember. No, if we, we did watched that the whole thing. I think but I did up get, did get up to go get water, but then we finished the trailer. Yeah, I just I under I see the Jalo inspiration in the story. I think the story has the story that silliness. more than the style. Yeah, because the story is basically a woman kind of has like this sleep paralysis thing going on, but instead of just like sitting there and seeing demons at the foot of her bed or horrible shit like that. She has an out-of-body experience where she starts seeing other people just get murdered by this one specific figure, which might be her imaginary friend. We don't know. That's the implication of the trailer. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like she's she's like, she like lives out these murders in real time, like as they're happening. Yes. So like somewhere on the other side of town, somebody's getting butchered and she's like, yeah. mentally in their place in mm-hmm. their vision yeah I, I feel like there's probably going to be some because that's the thing too is like i mean we we definitely listen to our three mothers trilogy if you have it in terms of like classic jalo type stuff yeah. but like the early think, days of the podcast yeah the early days but the <laughs> thing about jalos too is like jalos didn't look like that pre-suspiria jalos are pretty much just like pretty straightforward like color palettes weren't extreme sure like more design choices of like areas and whatnot production were a lot more creepy and, and, stuff, and yeah. yeah. Until like Deep Red and Suspiria and whatnot. Right. With this one, it does like unfortunately it looks a lot like insidious color wise and I hope yeah. it doesn't always Lots look of like kind that. of grayish blues. Yeah. It looks it, like a very two twenty tens horror movie to and me. And also the lead is Annabelle Wallace, which I bet she's a very nice woman. I liked <laughs> the only time I've liked her is in Tag. 
the Ed Helms oh, film. She played yeah. the reporter in that. I think that. you mean the Jeremy Renner film? Yes, the Jeremy Renner film with Ed Helms. Uh, but she's <laughs> also, I, I think, like, one of her first big roles was the Annabelle prequel, like, the very first yeah. one. And Wait, the creation? Uh, no, the, the, the first. Oh, first, just like, Annabelle. Annabelle. Oh, just Annabelle. Uh, the first bad film in the Conjuring universe. And then she also did Tom Cruise's The Mummy. Uh, who was? Oh, was she the love interest? Yeah, she's the love interest. Ah, I'm pretty sure that's her okay. too. Yeah. And so it's like, I hope she's good in this. I'm. I. It, she doesn't look like she's doing a bad job, but just like seeing her, I'm just like, oh man. Like with her and blockbusters, it's really just a, yeah. really a Russian roulette of quality. So right, I don't necessarily right. know how yeah. it's gonna be. She might. It might just be a case where she doesn't really have you know the footing or the pull yet to like you know, only be in good stuff so she's just kind of getting thrown into blockbusters because mm-hmm. she's you know can hold her own and mm-hmm. you know obviously she's pretty to look at too but you know hopefully she's she gets her chance to show more of her talent at the same time too because of Juan, we got kind of a resurgence with rose byrne patrick wilson with insidious and yeah. that, in that series so like Maybe this will be what she needs to kind of actually have yeah. some good, like, sh- have some good roles under yeah. her belt in I'll terms of blockbusters. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out when it comes around. I have a hard time these days getting like, I don't know, outright excited for Juan just because I think I've seen more things that made me go meh from him than things I've really thoroughly enjoyed. That's fair. Um, I mean, his filmography is very spotty. Yeah, but I feel like when it works, it's like. It's insanely like a fucking hit. Mm. Like I would say of all of his hit films, the weakest one, which I would probably consider as Aquaman, yeah. still made like a billion dollars oh, worldwide. Yeah. He so could it's definitely like definitely reach into the yeah. the mass audience and So yeah, pull he's like out. he he seems like the kind of if like in terms of like if he was like a baseball player, he'd be like he definitely strikes out from time to time, but when he fucking hits, he gets a home run. <laughs> Home one, oh, wow. Geez. Wasn't even trying to do that, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll, I hope that's good. But on the other flip side of things, I, every other f- trailer we got this week, I feel like I feel confident that yeah, it looks good. I mean, a lot of exciting stuff. The Last Duel was a film that I like. I completely forgot that I was excited for for this year because it's supposed to come out later this year. And when I made, I think for the film, yeah, we all made our like upcoming anticipated films. Oh yeah. That when when I put that on that list for myself, that was also just for the fact that it's like Ridley Scott, Matt Damon, yeah. Jodie Comer, Ben Affleck, Adam Driver. Like I didn't really expect if it was actually coming out or not. It was just like maybe. Yeah, that was one that I. I mean, I'm sorry. I've been really <laughs> excited for it too, but. Um... Yeah, it was one of those, I've probably known about it for like two years, and at the time when I first heard about it, it didn't have a release date or anything, mm-hmm. plus with COVID, it was just like, I was no longer paying attention to when it would come out, I was just like, oh yeah, there's that Ben Affleck, Matt Damon reunion movie that's coming out, and yeah. of course, since its conception, they've added Adam Driver to the mix, and I think, if I remember correctly, Adam Driver's actually playing the role that Ben Affleck was going to play as the kind of rival to Matt Damon's character. Yeah. It appears they're they're fighting over honor because Matt Damon's wife is accused of like being unfaithful. Uh, unfaithful and yeah. I think it, she it, she accuses Driver's character that he of like raping her or, or something. Just like, or uh, just take, like just pu- taking, pushing himself upon her. Yeah. Whether actually anything happened or not, it was more yeah. like assaulting her. Or yeah, something. just like and then it's like, yeah. Let's, 
just like brandishing or like just like hurting their honor as a as a right. couple and but it seems like a pretty multi-layered thing i mean it's got it seems at least from the trailer that it's got action like there will be kind of battle sequences and duel sequences it also seems like um you know it's it's less a bunch of men fighting over a voiceless woman it seems like uh, I can't remember that actress's name, but Jodie Comer. Jodie Comer, yeah. Uh, Matt, well, da- she seems to get her kind of own perspective in the film, and I think she's even listed first in the cast in the trailer. I think she's the lead. Um, I think and, she's the main character yeah, because so, the trailer really pushes her perspective. Yeah, it pushes this whole sort of like she's telling Matt Damon's character like you're just doing this for your own pride. Like you don't, you're not doing this to honor me or protect me. Like mm-hmm. you're just stuck on yourself and um so it's kind of a woman in the midst of a very masculine and uh kind of bullheaded conflict mm-hmm. about her very very toxic masculinity to a degree yeah. and, and maybe a little matt homoerotic ha- maybe no, sure. maybe really scott will push that angle a little bit yeah. who knows well and matt damon's got a very uh toxic goatee um, he does. Speaking he of toxic OTs on Matt Damon, he's also got that movie coming out soon, Stillwater, where he plays like a Trump supporter type. That is, that is a, that what too. he calls a roughneck. Yes. Which I guess uh, got a standing ovation at Cannes. Oh, good. I, I, I saw the trailer for it and I was like, oh, cool. I was like, this could go either way. Yeah. This I, could be a green book or mm-hmm. this could be a spotlight th- or somewhere thought, in between. I thought it was also announced to can that like the French dispatch got like a standing ovation of 17 minutes. Yeah. It's like, so I think that's can just a has thing just become, that they do. Can has just become like who can one up the other on the length of their standing ovation. Sure. Or how many times people walked out during it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's the first really Scott. And honestly, I think eight years for me, because like I think the last time a Ridley Scott film really got me excited was Prometheus mm. before I saw it. <laughs> and I mean, when I liked it when it first came out, but over time I was yeah. like, uh, okay. And I think it looks good. It feel it feels like it should be an easy slam dunk for everyone involved. Yeah, especially with what the cast is involved, the story is interesting. Well, because it's uh matt damon and ben affleck wrote it together right? yeah it's, and that's it's, their first script since goodwill hunting yeah it's the only other film they've this will be the only other film they've written together other than goodwill hunting yeah, which so. is wild but yeah, you know you good, would good think, for them you would think knowing their very public friendship that like they would have worked together a lot mm. more in their career yeah. but it's like even acting together it's a fairly small set of movies that they've been in together. Yeah, but I think at the same time they might have had the idea of being worried that they're going to be slumped into one another. Yeah, slumped together and, or yeah, stuck. Yeah, never never being able to do their own things. Sure. And thankfully they have. And yeah, yeah that one looks good. Um Jackass Forever, it looks dumb as can be. I cannot yeah. wait to see that in theaters. It's yeah, it looks a like blast. a blast. I'm definitely going to watch all three of the previous ones leading up to it because I think I've only seen the first one and I love it and I love that kind of brand of stupid yeah, hurt yourself comedy. <laughs> it's really funny to think about, at least for me, I saw the first one on Comedy Central late night when like there was a time where Comedy Central if it had something like after 1 a.m. it was unrated Oh, and I yeah. think when like I watched it once, and it was like all the lights were off, and watching this fucking goofy ass movie, I watched the second one on my Xbox 360, <laughs> <laughs> like early, like like late 2000s, and then with 3D, it was like I didn't want to see that in 3D, and 
It's all. It just shows how weirdly like the world has evolved. Yet Jackass has stayed the same. Yeah, because yeah, and Jackass forever it does not look like they're really changing the formula at all. No, it's, it's just, just a bunch more, of dudes in their fifties trying not to kill each other yeah, while they're just doing more dumb of, bits. More of what people have loved so far. So that that looks like a bunch of fun. But the last film is one that needs no introduction because honestly, it should be on everyone's everyone's watch. I mean. I, I will have my Eternals and Dune watch in terms of any kind of new information oh, yeah. about these. But Dune got a new trailer, and it looks phenomenal. Yeah. I'm excited to see how it does. I'm worried that there's a possibility it could flop just oh, because. Honestly, I but, don't expect it to do that well. Sad to say. No, I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, if, if, if... I think that's why this newest trailer, why it pushes Zendaya, it pushes oh, um, Jason yeah. Momoa, it's yeah. a little bit of humor... Yeah. That like I don't think you really hear in the book. Yeah, or and even the previous trailers for this no. movie. And I don't expect it to be a super whimsical adventure. No. Um, but I think, yeah, they were probably pushing that in this trailer for those reasons, and that's fine. Yeah. Um, but it looks good. Yeah, it does. I, it We definitely... I mean, most of the stuff we'd seen so far had been kind of reserved and held back probably just for, you know, anticipation's sake. Um, this one kind of cut loose and show us more of... The landscape of the characters and who fills what role and some battle sequences and stuff. So it looks like they're going all out with it, which is what we want. Yeah, the cast looks perfect. I'm curious to see just where it goes in terms of the story. I feel like I know where it's going to cut off story-wise, but it just... I love Denis so much. We might do a Denis trilogy by the time that comes out, but we'll see. But uh, until then, hello everyone. I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. And this is Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy. And on Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy, we take a trio of films, either tied by number, by cast and crew, by thematic elements, etc., and we talk about the good, the bad, and the weird surrounding them. And today we have a special case trilogy. Because not only is this truly a weird trilogy in terms of how it was released, it also is a trilogy that just finished about a week or so ago. Yeah, we're very hip to the culture. We ch- we're we, on the pulse. Listen, we with a with a trilogy with a podcast about odd trilogies. When they drop in front of you, <laughs> yeah. When you drop an odd trilogy in one month, you truly you truly gotta either say something about it or just feel shame for not wanting to do that yeah i mean you made me feel really bad for wanting to make this episode my planes episode um so i was like okay fine we can do something cool you can always do a planes episode you it's always up there you know yeah but you came to me i was almost done recording and you (laughs) stopped me and said no this is the fear street week and then and then i then no one else saw that andy opened up his CD case, and <laughs> he has 53 different takes of his planes podcast. <laughs> I just can't get every, can't get it right. No, but today we are talking about R.L. Stein's Fear Street, yep. the Netflix trilogy that was released one by one from July 2nd to July 16th, once a week. Yes, and so for those of you who don't know. Fear Street is a horror series written for young adults, teenagers to probably like 18, 19, who were basically written by R.L. Stein, known for Goosebumps. Yeah, it was kind of designed as his like, oh, this one's for the older kids. Yeah, Goosebumps are for babies. Fear Street is truly my passion, that type <laughs> yeah. of thing. And 
these films don't really follow a story from those books because a lot of those books are very much self-contained. Right. But the story is, I think, had some help and assistance from R.L. Stein. Yeah, certainly and, a lot of nods to the books. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if there's a diehard Fear Street fan base out there, but I know there's plenty of Easter eggs for you if I didn't catch any of them when I was watching, but I found them online afterwards. Yeah, I think the biggest Easter egg, the biggest notable Easter egg on all three films is that um, in a book, there's a scene, there are a couple scenes that take place in a bookstore throughout the series, and in that bookstore, there are actual Fear Street novels. Yeah. In terms of like verbatim titles, even cover art. Yeah, but I believe they're written by Robert Lawrence, which, I which believe, is R.L. Stein's actual name. I was going to say, yeah. it's got to be his actual name. And the initial idea for these Fear Street films, they're all directed by Lee Janiak. Ja- yeah, Janiak. Janiak, Janiak who I'm not is sure. a she's she is a director who is known notably for a indie horror film called Honeymoon, mm-hmm. which is which has Rose Leslie from Game of Thrones fame, and I think she hasn't really done anything else besides Fear Street. I think she has those four films yeah. under her belt. She also and, wrote on all three films yeah. with various writing partners. I think. Mm-hmm. The same writing partner for the first and the third film and a different one for the second film. But she writes on all of them. So the initial idea for this trilogy was in 2020, you know, last year that felt like it was eight years ago. (laughs) The initial idea was during the summer from, I believe, June, July and August, they were going to release a new Fear Street film a month and have about three weeks in between each one. And then COVID happened. And instead, it seems Netflix bought the rights to the films and decided that to do that, but on a smaller scale in terms of doing a film a week in one month. Yeah. And Um, on all honesty, I don't think that was a worse plan. I I think think honestly, at least in terms of cultural impact, it was probably a better move. I mean... I think it would have been cool um, to have a you know monthly trilogy over the summer, um, but obviously once that plan was dashed, I think it's really kind of fascinating and unprecedented to have a feature film trilogy yeah. out in under a month. Because like I think beginning to end, all directed by the same person, all yeah. the same chronology. It's really cool. Because I think the closest, the two closest examples you kind of could have to that is Lord of the Rings having a new film every year. Yeah. And The Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions coming out six months between each other. Yeah. But that's like, but then it gets smaller with the fact that Fear Street does it in a, three weeks. Yeah. Does an entire trilogy that is absolutely made with the idea of all three of these films being contained and released in at least three months between each other initially. Yeah. And, or I mean, a all, month. Yeah. And it is fascinating to see. Netflix kind of pushed these out and to see that the fact that they're still doing really well, I think on at least the American charts, I don't necessarily know how they're yeah, doing overseas. I, I mean, I know, I just know that, yeah, for the last three, four weeks, and they've been in the top 10 kind of social feeds with regards to movies have been about each week's fear, news, fear yeah. street movie. Um, and it's, it, it makes it even better that, I mean, for me personally, I think all three films are consistently the same. Like I think yeah, they're all they're, pretty they're, great. Yeah, they're pretty all pretty even. Um, yeah, because I mean, do we just want to go into 1994? Just like uh, well, we can talk about the trilogy as a whole a little bit, and then yeah. go into each oh, absolutely. one and then kind of recap it all. Um, but yeah, no, I I think they I, 
I think personally for me, I was probably not as high on them as individual films as you were. Not going to be negative on them because no, I did like them. Um, but I, really the thing for me, I, I, it's almost, and I don't want to slight the films too much by saying this, but it's almost the trilogy is greater than the sum of its parts. I feel like as a whole thing together, mm-hmm. it's really fascinating. It's really cool. Yeah. It's an unprecedented and exciting new thing where it's part throwback, part horror film for young people, part... Yeah. Uh, you know, speaking to kind of Gen Z issues and stuff where yeah, it's, the genre it's doesn't very really... progressive. Yeah, it's... Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just really interesting just having something this kind of coherent and cohesive and single vision all out so quickly. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like it could have just as easily been like a miniseries or a season of Netflix TV. Definitely could have. Really glad that it wasn't. Yes, I think it really benefits from having the feature trilogy format just because it's not something we're used to mm-hmm. as much um and I, I feel like also netflix not that the, this wasn't actually produced by netflix but um uh you know i feel like netflix has a tendency to kind of milk their their episodic format over the course of a season so i feel like oh, this yeah. could have gotten way dragged out if it was so yeah i think it being three less than two hour films is perfect um, i agree with that and yeah. it's just you know you it's three kind of individual stories and each one has a beginning middle and end but it's all tied together into a larger story which yeah. is cool i thought it was going to be more of an anthology where each one was kind of separate but like loosely tied but really oh, no, it's, yeah no it's, it's like a couple characters kind of experiencing the whole thing it's an overarching narrative that feels like it is act one is 1994 act two is 1978 and act three is 1666 yeah and it feels very much like to me i think the reason why i'm so high on them to a degree is the fact that like just the plain experience of watching this with people was just a blast yeah it was a lot of fun because to me because like i saw the first one before you did yeah where like i was home for fourth of july the first film came out on july 2nd Mm -hmm. my dad was super like he was super excited to see these and was like I know he's like you might. He's like I know you got to leave, but like maybe we should watch one of these before you go, since there's only one out. I watched it with my dad and my brother. All three of us are huge horror fans. You know, love zombies. You know, love have have had decent amount of slasher history. I pretty much love anything horror. <laughs> sure. And we're watching it, and we're just like we're all getting genuinely shocked at certain choices. I'm getting impressed by how tight all the callbacks and the setups are mm. at the very end of the film yeah. and how like even just minor jokes and nods at the beginning actually come back to be impactful at the very <laughs> end of the first film. And just to feel like watching that film, we will get into it, but there is a certain moment in the third act where I saw it. We were all shocked and I was like, God, I got to watch this with the group with Andy. <laughs> so we decided and I, I pitched this to Andy and we thought it was a great idea. We watched this with our girlfriends, mm. and we watched this as like a movie marathon type scenario, and I thought after watching a piece of shit like The Nun together, all four of us, I felt like maybe <laughs> we should watch something genuinely good. Right. And then we watched all three of these together, and I genuinely feel like watching it in a group setting feels like the perfect way to watch these yeah, movies. Yeah, absolutely. You could definitely watch these by yourself and still enjoy the hell out of them, but like, Man, it's really fun to sit in a room with a bunch of people trying to piece the mystery together as yeah. it goes. 
as well as when people just start getting slaughtered and it just catches you off guard. Yeah, especially, and we can here in a minute just go right into kind of talking about the movies individually, but especially the first one got me like that because I feel like for the first two thirds, you know, other than a couple moments here and there, it feels very kind of... Uh, Stranger Thingsy. It's horror light for young adults. Yeah, it's kind it, of more comedy and it fun feels like adventure. if it was cut in a certain way, it could have been PG thirteen. Yeah, yeah. If you but, if you kind of cut like a, a couple amount of fucks in the script and right, like some right. of the, some of the kills. Yeah, it's kind of skirting around really delving into being like brutal horror, and then the third act hits and it gets way darker. Yeah, and more fucked up, and people die violently. Yeah. And yeah, it just that really kind of sold me on the trilogy moving forward. I was like, oh, okay, this isn't, it's not really fucking around. <laughs> so. No, yeah. It's one of those things, too, where it's just like, once that happens, I was wondering how much, if it was going to lose any impact the second time through, it did not lose any uh, yeah. of that impact. It actually, it almost amplifies it more watching it in a different group. Yeah, and, and seeing, seeing other them. people react to it. Yeah, and well, I did kind of, I did warn all of you, because I know I was like, I feel like Emma's going to, your, your girlfriend, I was like, I bet Emma's going to get squeamish. Yeah. If I don't, yeah. like, warn her that this is going to happen. <laughs> and then, like, I felt better that I did that, but at the same time, it's like. Well, it was funny, because it was kind of, we all telegraphed it for ourselves, and then you just confirmed it. Cause yeah. Because there, there was a kill coming, and I think Jen, your girlfriend, was like, is are they gonna and you were like yep yep it's gonna happen strap in yeah, yeah, <laughs> and then it happens he's like listen like, oh yes. my god yeah after watching the the Suspiria remake I was like listen I feel like if the if the vibe of the room seems very tense and we're about to get into something I know is gonna get even worse than what we think <laughs> I'm just gonna make sure everyone's somewhat prepped for this yeah and uh, yeah I guess a, a good way to kind of get into it is that um. The first part takes place in 1994, basically sets up the world, the lore surrounding what this whole town is about. Because the basic premise is there is a witch's curse surrounding a place called Shadyside. And it is to believe that this witch is the cause of all these horrible kind of like mass murders that happen every 16 years since 1666. Yeah. And in 1994, basically what happens is a bunch of kids who are trying to like deal with the fact that another mass murder happened, come across basically the catalyst of what could be another mass murdering incident, and basically in that process learn more, try to figure out how to stop the curse, or at least have a loophole to get out of the curse, because once they get stuck in there, they're kind of fucked until they find a way to kind of stop it. Right. And then 1978 is basically they find somebody who was a survivor of a previous mass murder at a summer camp, very Friday the 13th-esque, and then we take a flashback to 1978 where we see her story right. and what led that. We learn more about the mystery, more about the witch's curse and all that. And in the third film, it's 1666. We go back to when it all started. Yeah, we find it's like the a truth. Puritan village, like yeah. crucible style. Yeah, we find the earliest shady side settlers. We find the truth about it all. And then it ends on basically going back to 1994 and really tying it up in a very nice bow. Yeah, and that was kind of a surprising... I don't know if you knew about it, but I didn't realize with the third film that that it was going to be half 1666 and half 
you know, 94 part two. I, I, I felt, mean, by the time we got there, yeah. we kind of knew, okay, we're going to have to tie up the modern day story. That's, that's but where I didn't kinda realize I was. it was going to be like half and half. I didn't, I didn't know it was going to be half and half either, but like, I really liked that. Yeah. I just knew to, I just knew in my brain that like, whatever they were going to do in 1666, they're going to do really quick. And I can't see them ending it in 1666 oh, when, no. yeah. when there is enough that needs to be settled in 1994. Yeah. And in the best way possible, the first hour of the final film does everything you need in terms of getting context for the entire origin of the witch's curse and what you need to know about the true villain. And then the right. second half is just the the finale, the bombastic finale in a in a yeah. nice in a giant mall right. where they the, have to how fight are we off win everybody. Kind of thing. Yeah, and it's it's just overall it's really hard again. And thankfully, it seems like when we've been doing this podcast, we've been finding more and more trilogies that prove us wrong when we say this oh, yeah. to a degree where it's like, this trilogy, I just feel like, is so consistent in its quality. And while I do think there's, I like one more than the other, or like maybe I have different issues with this yeah. one compared to other, I just feel like I'm so, I'm having such a fun time with all three films that like, if someone wanted to watch these three again, or I feel like they would like them, I would recommend them and maybe even join. Yeah. For like a one or two, or maybe all three if I had the time. And I wouldn't regret it because I feel like the film is, I think the film is smartly written. I think it's well directed. Mm -hmm. It's it's just some of the, it's, I never expected these three films to be homages that are also just tight, genuinely good horror films. Mm, yeah. Because like, it was also kind of shocking that like, there are some good design choices in terms of, in the films, there are multiple killers. Because with the witch's curse, per se, they basically bring back the past mass murderers. And they all yeah, have a unique design. Them as her puppets. And many of them are kind of inspired by yeah. classic horror monsters. I mean, there's one who's kind of a... A Michael Myers type, one that's yeah. a you know Jason Voorhees type. You have the scream. You have the uh, yeah. You have the scream killer, ghost face. Yeah, you have the ghost face esque killer, yeah. who's the most recent version because it's 1994. Yeah, you have honestly the best looking one, but doesn't get used enough, which is uh, I would call him Baby Bat, <laughs> <laughs> who's like this really tiny, just like this child, if not tiny guy who just has, like, a baby face mask and is known for just beating the shit out of people's brains. Yeah, I guess he, and, like, killed his parents with a baseball bat. Yeah, and he's just, like, he's genuinely frightening just from afar. <laughs> and it's like, why is this killer yeah. the one that's just, like, not being used? Yeah, and, yeah. But the ones they do use, uh, the ones they use, which is, like, one of the killers is, like, a girl from the 50s who uses a razor blade to kill our victims and it has a really beautiful voice. Another one is they call Nightwing, who is the main killer in 1978. Mm -hmm. You have the Ghostface-esque one. You have all these different really cool designs that I think are really used well. And it's just, I feel like anyone who really enjoys horror would just have a fun time. Yeah, with all it's, these. It these, is, it's a lot of throwbacks and good throwbacks. But it yeah. also, I think as it goes on, as it gets further into the trilogy, becomes kind of like less throwbacky and more kind of concerned with its own yeah, story like and its own identity which is good you want that you don't want to be getting to the end of a trilogy mm -hmm. and being like well this was a nice set of nods i guess <laughs> yeah i do feel like it has a nice balance between fun homage and genuine drama 
Yeah. Where it's like it, the the drama there is actually well done, mainly because the cast is actually really good. Yeah, the it's, yeah the young cast is surprisingly like effective. the two the two biggest names in the cast are really uh, Jillian Jacobs from Community and Invincible, who plays an older an older version of the survivor from 1978. Yeah, she's kind of and, a traumatized. Yeah, like lady who like a shut in kind of. Yeah, and then who plays? Yeah, who kind of plays a a, a a version of like uh, uh, Laurie Strode in the most mm-hmm. recent Halloween to a degree. Yeah, yeah. And then Sadie Sink from Stranger Things, who plays the younger version of Jillian Jacobs's character yeah. in 1978. They're the only two notable per se actors besides like yeah. the youngest brother of the main character in 1994 was like I think in a Nickelodeon show <laughs> that maybe kids who watch it will know him from. Well, and he's low key the MVP of the whole thing. Oh yeah, Josh, Josh. The, the the guy who plays Josh is honestly my favorite character all throughout and I feel like he's another great example of how they have an arc from him that starts at the beginning of the film yeah. and by the end of the film he genuinely feels changed a better person, yeah, and it feels like there has been a genuine effect of everything that's happened to him. Yeah, well, he in in universe, he's probably the most clearly affected as a character and as a person by the kind of dark turn that yeah. the finale of yeah. the first film takes. I think it does a great job in that final film where it's the fact that like both him and his sister have gone through so much in less than a week that by the time that finale hits, it's like they look more resolved. They feel like they're more mature and they know what they want to do. And they know are determined to stop the curse from happening. Yeah. And it honestly, it leads into why I think out of all three of them, I like 1994 the best. Yeah. I probably, because I feel like when that film starts, the film literally starts with a scream homage with Maya Hawke <laughs> yeah. from also from Stranger Things. She's Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman's daughter. Right. And it has that vibe of like, she's the Drew Barrymore in this situation. Yeah. It's supposed to be the catalyst for what leads to all the things that happen later on in the film. And from that point forward, you're thinking, oh, maybe this is just going to be like a scream homage, which is hilarious because that was an homage of slashers at <laughs> yeah, that yeah. time too. And But overall, what really happens is you start to get – some genuine history about the main characters, yeah. the world around them, the differences between Shady Side, which is where our main characters live, plus uh, versus Sunnyvale, which is basically like prep central, mm-hmm. like basically prep city with yeah. all these beautiful like country like yeah, it's like a dual and, town, like kind of Shady Side is the wrong side of the tracks, yeah. and yeah, all Sunnyvale is these... the nice kind of. Mm-hmm community all the all the mass murders are happening specifically in shady side yeah. while sunnyvale is fine right and yeah sunnyvale is like flourishing yeah and it leads to having characters like our main character dina in the film who was just like she is a she's a lesbian in the 90s who is full-on grunge full-on hates the world yeah. feels like nothing there's no hope in the world because why the fuck would there be any hope if you were born and raised in shady side <laughs> and her best friends are a drug dealer slash cheerleader who is just trying her best to get out of mm. Shadyside, Kate, and uh, Simon, who is just an absolute goof. Yeah, he he's is. just a goofball through and through. But as you find out later, he's a goof who is the only person who is putting money and food on the table for his family. <laughs> yeah. 
which is sad. <laughs> right, yeah. He's and, employee of the month at the supermarket yeah. for several months in a row. And it's a great gag, but also tragic at the yeah, same time. It's like, and you know, he's just pouring his soul into that job yeah. to provide for his family. Yeah, and it's just a, this cast of characters are just doing, for the first, like, 30 minutes, just doing classic high school film shit. And then an accident basically propels them into a supernatural event that ultimately, from that point forward, Dina's younger brother, Josh, who is a fucking nerd through and through, (laughs) and there's nothing wrong with that. He's on AOL chat rooms talking about murders. He's playing Castlevania Bloodlines on a Sega (laughs) Genesis. He's such a cool kid. Yeah. You know, just in his basement with all this memorabilia of, like, horror and, like, heavy metal. Yeah. He's wearing an Iron Maiden shirt, I think, for the majority <laughs> of the first film. He's and, a, uh, tr- truly, he's an oppressed gamer. Yes, truly. He truly he is the best gamer I've seen in a film, <laughs> I think, maybe ever. Yeah. And once he's brought into the film, he is basically lore god and explains yeah. all the things we know about the witch's curse the, the nursery rhyme that goes to the witch's curse, right. which actually gives you hints as to where the story is going. Yeah. And all the things you need to know for 78 and 1666. And 1994 is just such... I think that's the one that, out of all of them, I feel like you can watch that by itself and feel like, okay, you know, I could have I could have honestly waited three months if I had seen 1994 in theaters. And yeah, like, absolutely. Oh, 1978's coming out in, like, late summer. That's fine. And then, like, after that, it's... Because, like, 1994 is just a strong open and also mm. a bold one. Yeah. Because the finale, like you said, is it's so much dark. darker and it's what it's trying to do. Yeah. And is also just, like, when shit gets real. Like, last minute. Yeah, you kind is, of realize... Oh, it's, yeah. it's kind of like, like the 90s uh, Scooby-Doo films where it's like, oh, these are not people dressed in masks. These are yeah. actual monsters. It's like Our Zombie lives Island. are on the line. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, oh, wait. We're actually in a horror film. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> Someone has to die. Yeah. And the, what we're talking about is in 1994, which, in case we haven't said... Please go watch these films before you listen to this podcast. Uh, yeah, since these are pretty new, we'll go ahead and put out a, a spoiler warning, but I feel like we can't really talk in depth about yeah. these without going into detail, especially the following two films, because they're built directly off of Absolutely. What, go- what happens in this. But what we're talking about with the third act, it's just insane that the third act in 1994 is basically, early on in the film, there is a dark, co- there's a dark joke that works really well, where it's like, Simon's brother accidentally OD'd once, but it was fine. It wasn't a real OD because he came back. Yeah. Cut to the third act of the film where the main goal is, okay, all the monsters are coming after our friend Sam. Well, what if we kill her and bring her back? Because technically, the witch's curse won't end until she's dead. So loophole-wise, if we kill her and bring her back, they'll just stop because she technically died. Yeah. So they basically tried to have her overdose, yeah, and then unfortunately that doesn't work. So instead, Dina, who is also Sam's ex-girlfriend, <laughs> has to drown her in a lobster tank at yeah. a grocery store in order to make sure that the curse stops. And it is such a bold, risky choice. Yeah. That, like I've been thinking about it for a while because when we saw it as a group, I mean, 
Your girlfriend definitely wasn't the biggest fan of it. She was very conflicted with it. My girlfriend was also very conflicted. Probably what Jen it was more than do. Emma, honestly. Probably, honestly, probably my girlfriend more than anything. I think she was just a long time. I was like, this is going to be bad for kids. <laughs> yeah. But then I thought about it. I suppose today I thought about it. And I feel like that it's kind of silly we thought that because I feel like that moment is like similar to like when parents in the past have been like, think of the children. Because I feel like if most teenagers watch this film, they would also go like, well, this is pretty fucking rad and weird. And yeah. they would know this is not, you know. Right. Well, and it's this a isn't horror real. movie. It's, yeah. not like a, it's not like 13 Reasons Why, where it's like, this is a real a re- realistic representation oh, yeah. of yeah. suicide and depression. And then you're like kind of giving, you know, suicidal kids the keys to the kingdom in terms yeah. of how to do it. Whereas this, it's like, okay, this is a ludicrous fantasy horror film these kids are desperate and which they know they're desperate and they also acknowledge the film gets across that like this is a bad idea but like this is our only option yeah and they and they don't want to kill their friend when they think they could try something else but they also yeah constantly admit like listen i don't know if this is really gonna work but like this is really all we've got (laughs) and it's like okay and i think it works i feel like if i had seen this as a teenager I feel like it would just be like, well, I got to fucking talk to other people about this shit because this is weird. Yeah. And it works really well because I do. It is funny, too, because, like, I think one of the things that doesn't really work that well with the film in the end is the fact that, like, instead of, like, after drowning Sam and, you know, the curse has been stopped momentarily, uh, Dina doesn't go right into CPR. She just starts shooting adrenaline into her yeah, heart. Yeah, stabbing as her with EpiPens. Yeah, like, like, okay. Not just one EpiPen, but like seven Multiple, or eight. Yeah. And it does nothing, and then she decides to do CPR, which again, yeah. she's not trained to do it. It's not like they've yeah, had set that it's up. It's fair for the character, but yeah. it's kind of like, as a viewer, you're like, mm, it's like okay. Yeah, it's like even someone like me who's not trained in CPR and wasn't in high school, I feel like the first thing I would do is chest compressions and like, you know, breathe air into their lungs right, and all right. that. But other than that, 1994 is really just extremely tight through and through. Yeah. And has like, yes, it has a lot of needle drops, which I know you, you yeah, have. I, a- think I, I was probably put off the most by the needle drops and more so in this one than in 78. But yeah, just a mm-hmm. lot of kind of, I will Very say obvious though, choices yes. and just kind of constant. It was like, okay, how do we get to the next hit song? And it was like, eh, I'm gonna be honest though, let it live. That the 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 fire started by Prodigy Neil drop <laughs> was fucking tight. Yeah, and I think I never expected these films to bring in the Prodigy. <laughs> so <laughs> I I will say for a film in 1994, you know. I, I expect you you can expect I'm only happy when it rains. Oh yeah, and this and that, but like. Having the fact that like both the prodigy and then the offspring in part two of nineteen ninety four, right. it's like, well, at least they mix it up with something else yeah. that's not just like the, yeah. pop hits of the nineties. The other kind of funny thing about all the needle drops in ninety four is like most of them, I don't, I don't have a count, but the majority of them are anachronistic. Like they didn't come out until a few years after ninety four. <laughs> so it's like, why are we? Are you just telling me this? Are you just reminding me this is the nineties? Yeah. Because like that's clearly these is. kids aren't listening to this because this isn't out yet. Well, I think a fr- uh, friend of ours from the app, Alec Toombs, I feel like he, uh, if I remember correctly, like this is he probably loved every single needle drop oh, probably in the film, and it, I, it feels like that type of thing where it's like if you were a teenager in the '90s and you watched this, it probably get, hits that hits that sweet spot. <laughs> yeah, especially if you were a bit of that grunge kind of outsider type. And yeah, 
going into 1978, what basically happens is at the very end of 1994, it addresses that, yeah, Sam's not being hunted anymore, but now she is turned into one of the possible killers. So they have to find a way to basically cure her of this evil curse. And so they go to Jillian Jacobs' character, who is known at the film as C. Berman, because she's the only person who survived the slaughter. She's one of the only people who were left at the camp who survived the slaughter in 1978. And what we get as a process in 1978, I would say might be the weakest of the three, but at the same time, it's probably the most straightforward. It is, yeah. It's probably, I think probably the issue with it is it feels the most self-conflicted because going into 78, it's at a summer camp, it's very clearly going for Friday the 13th. Yeah. But it's also going for, like, it's probably the least horror bent of the three. Mm-hmm. And it's the most, like, sentimental. So it's weird to go, like, okay, we're taking on the full-on slasher aesthetic. Yeah. But instead of a slasher, we're going to do, like, a camp kids film. And it's fun and sweet. And it's like, yeah. uh, okay, that's weird. The, the first chunk of the film is very much feels like what, what Hot American Summer is making fun of. Uh, yeah. fun of. Yeah. And then at a certain point, it becomes two different types of films. It becomes uh, a, camp, a, a, a camp paint war gone wrong with a serial killer. And then a basically a like mysterious cave story where it's kind of like the Descent-esque where it's like they're trying to get out of this cave but they're finding more and more about the origins of the witch's curse as they yeah. do that. And, and it's it, just, I think it probably spreads itself the most thin of any of them. Yeah, because I, yeah, I, will, I will say that I think all the stuff uh, pertaining to Jillian Jacobs's younger version of herself, Sadie Sink, who plays uh, Ziggy, Yeah, I feel like all the stuff with her Ziggy just feels so disconnected until, like, the very end. Yeah, well, they, and, yeah, they kind of try. I don't know how, how much of this is deliberate, but they're kind of trying to leave it ambiguous as to whether C. Berman, Jillian Jacobs' character, mm-hmm. is Ziggy or if she's Or Ziggy's their sister. older sister, Cindy. Yeah. Here's, here's the thing that I think is the most unfortunate, probably the only unfortunate thing about Netflix buying these films, is that I do think the film was genuinely trying to basically do a pull like uh, gotcha yeah. moment where the fact that it's like in the first film 1984 they just say that the only survivor is c berman it's like and, c they look yeah. her up in the phone book yes they see like the the news mm-hmm. and of course she was a minor at the time so they don't publish her full name yeah so they go by c berman c dot berman and, so, and they, so in the sequel they keep it a c dot berman but when they go into the past they say that there's an older sister named cindy and a younger younger sister named Ziggy. Well, you find out later that in reality, Jillian Jacobs isn't the older sister. She's the younger sister, Christine Ziggy Berman, who yeah. goes by Ziggy. And the thing is, I feel like the only reason why it doesn't really work in this way is because it's fucking Max from Stranger Things. Yeah. And a no-name actress, which the, the actress who plays Cindy kills it i think she's one of the best parts about the film as well as the guy who plays tommy who turns into the camp nightwing killer i think he gives off an incredible like ominous intense vibe as the killer who's basically mind controlled by the curse but like it's very clear like if you've seen anything (laughs) if (laughs) if you've seen stranger things where it's like 
Well, if I'm going to pick the person who's going to be, you know, the survivor, yeah. I'm going to probably pick her. Right. Which, you know, it could have been a nice twist where it's like, it could have been another Drew Barrymore-esque situation where Sadie Sink does die and it is the older sister. Yeah. But the fact that we spend most of the important time with the older sister makes it pretty clear that, like, by the end of it, she's probably going to die. And yeah. then Ziggy's going to have to learn all this through yeah, a traumatic experience. Kind of left with. <laughs> Ziggy being kind yeah. of not more that not much more than like the victim of it all, you know. Mm-hmm. Not, it also not is... in like a weird way, but just in like a she's not a super well fleshed out character. Yeah, yeah, because Ziggy's just like very weak as a character in that second film, and she's fine. I think Sadie Sink does a really good job, but like ev- a lot of her stuff early on is kind of expository. Yeah. Where it's like, she's like, oh, you just got to be the perfect sister because dad left and mom's got a drinking problem and goes to double shift. And it's like, calm down. Right. Like, in the first film, you get a good sense that, like, Dina and Josh's dad are always taking double shifts because there's post-it notes everywhere. And it says double shift, food in the fridge, you know, love you, bye. Yeah. And all the Bud Light cans that you see everywhere. And then in 78, it's just like there are moments where, like, just exposition comes out of nowhere. And it's like, cool. But, yeah. like, I think the funniest part about 1978 was the fact that you, Emma, and I all were kind of like, oh, Sadie Sink has to be Jillian Jacobs. Because it's Stranger Things, you know, Sadie Sink's the biggest star from that. Right. But my girlfriend has not seen Community <laughs> or Stranger Things. And we kept calling Ziggy by uh, Jillian Jacobs' name <laughs> because, like, we were just like, well, we're not going to call her C. Berman. We're just going to yeah. call her the actress, the older actress's name. And at one point, Jen goes, okay, hold on. Who the fuck are you guys talking about? Yeah. <laughs> and then we clarified it with her, and she's like, okay, good. Because I had no idea who this Jillian Jacobs is <laughs> until you told me. And, uh, I mean, in the film, too, I think they establish at a certain point when they introduce, when they reveal that it's Christine Berman that survives. I believe David Bowie's The Man Who Sold the World, which is, you know, an iconic song about, yeah. like, a man tricking being another persona and getting away with it. They play that as well as I think in the nineties, they play the Nirvana cover of that song, which makes it even more clear that like, that's what it's supposed to be. (laughs) But if you've seen all of stranger things, you just go, Oh, Netflix, Sadie sink. It's gotta be her. Even though it wasn't meant to be a Netflix thing. Yeah. It's also, yeah. It also wasn't even produced by Netflix. No, not at all. They just bought it. No, which is kind of wild. It is weird because this feels very Netflixy, and not in a bad not, way. I yeah, feel like it's perfect. Mostly not in a bad way. Yeah, but yeah, mostly just in a declarative way. Mm. It feels um, like the perfect type of weird thing Netflix would push, and then would probably get popular because it's like, yeah, this is like weird. Why would Netflix do this? Yeah. Well, I gotta see this, right? And yeah, 1978 is just straightforward. Like, if you are a straight up old school slasher fan, you will enjoy. All the wild kills. Not only will you enjoy the wild kills, you also enjoy the fact that like the film has more balls than I think old school slashers do because kids fucking die in this movie. Yeah, I it, do. I do kind of wish that coming off the sort of really dark turn of '94, I wish this had really like committed to the brutality and maybe a higher kill count and no. creativity of the deaths. Um, yeah, just because you kind of get. I mean, we get this sort of, you know, Jason Voorhees-type killer in Tommy, um, but he just kind of goes around and he hits people with an axe and they die, and that's fine. Yeah, but, like, he doesn't, you know, put anybody through any machines. He doesn't 
shoot no. anybody doesn't like bend anybody backwards over you know the machine yeah. or something like there's not there's not really a lot to any of the kills other than getting hit in the chest with an axe yeah and the ones who who get who die are like kids who had like one or two lines prior yeah like, yeah and the really kids one of the saddest die. deaths is there's a fat kid who is like just super shy and yeah. Tommy before he gets possessed tells that kid like he's got to stay by his post you're you're the linchpin in this whole operation <laughs> cut to later on in the night he's a whole by himself and then he sees Tommy and then Tommy just fucking brutalizes him yeah, well, and there's no arc it, but yeah. yeah there's no you don't see any kids die which i is obviously deliberate because that is that is crossing a line that they could get away with to a degree, but at the yeah, same I would time, have wanted them to go for it. Yeah, I mean, I would have been fine <laughs> with it, the but way I know ninety four ended. I yeah, would have rather I would have been it. fine with it too. I feel like if they had done it well enough, yeah. but I feel like they were just like, ah, we maybe we should just do it like this. Yeah, and I do think, yeah, it does suck that like when you go into seventy eight, you hear that there's like twelve people who die, so you assume it's going to be like all these wildly different deaths, but in reality, what happens is. Tommy kills a single guy. You don't see Tommy for a while. Tommy runs into like a bunch of kids randomly in a house. He slaughters all those kids. Off screen. Yeah. Finds, yeah, off screen. Finds another random person. You see a brutal kill from them. Finds some other kids, brutalizes yeah. them off screen. And then it basically continues until Cindy and Ziggy face off and kill him. Right. And it also kind of is a, a bit of a disappointment that like in 1994, you get three different types of the which is curse killers and in 1978 it's mainly the Pretty same much just one yeah it's mainly the same axe wielding guy yeah. as in the first one only this time around you see the origin of like he had a sack over his face which is very much an homage to friday the 13th too yeah. and in the trailer because they were kind of they were teasers at the end of each at each film to a degree mm-hmm. at the end of 1994 it almost implies that the killers you didn't see in 94 were going to show up in 78. Yeah, it kind of feels and, like, oh, this is going to be the balls-to-the-wall, yeah. violent, horrifying one. And it and they do, but they're not really used, and they show up it's very the last very minute. End, yeah. Very last minute. Two of, the, two of the iconic, well, the baby bat and, like, the plague mask grifter guy yeah never get any kills they just like look ominous from afar as they walk yeah, closer they walk to them into the clearing it's, it's only the milkman who gets like a killing Some blow stabs, yeah. which is like it's a good moment of like that's kind of sad when that scene happens where both yeah. cindy and, and ziggy are getting fucked but uh like they're getting just like stabbed and like hit constantly <laughs> yeah. and it's like wow why is this happening so yeah. much I think I think with with ninety four and sixteen sixty six both really sticking the landing with like kind of heavy emotional beats and a yeah. focus on that. I kind of wish seventy eight, being that it was going for the slasher aesthetic, um, the Friday the Thirteenth kind of vibe. I wish it had kind of maybe not focused so much more as like on the sentiment of yeah. it and more on the like oh, let's be violent and terrifying and gross and kind of goofy. Um, mm-hmm. And instead, it was a little softer than I wanted it to be. It is a bit. And I and I do think that its big emotional pull is supposed to be about it's an, it's an earlier version of, like, the shady side kids, you know, the yeah. 70s kids. And it's pretty clear that the energy in 94 about, like, you know, fuck shady side, you know, this sucks that we're stuck here and whatnot – in 78, the big thing in terms of, like, trying to progress that kind of emotional arc for the films is, like, in 78, 
all these kids talking about wanting to get out and how like there is a chance that we aren't always tied to our town and there is a chance that we can actually live our own lives without having to worry about this curse only to unfortunately have most of them die yeah but at the same time it leads way into 1666 where like dina kind of has the same kind of approach but has like fully determined to beat that curse and to go over that hump and actually live her life to the fullest and it's like in 78 i feel like that does hit a bit more because in 78 there are some good moments but yeah it's not as strong as in 1666 or in 1994 in terms of the emotional arc right as much as i love cindy too i think cindy does a great job of just like seeing her just admit to herself that like she's being the prim and proper survivor girl basically because she's wants to just get the fuck out of there as fast yeah. as can be. And she's not being herself. And when she becomes herself, she feels more free and becomes more close with her sister. But by the time that happens in the film, the film just steamrolls to the finale. And then the finale happens and it's sad and it is impactful, but it's mainly sad. Yeah. And then we get to the very end of 78 where like we get back to 94 they find out what they've needed to know the whole time with the curse. Dina goes and takes care of it. And then Dina gets mentally transported back to 1666. Yeah, she kind of links up with the original Sarah Fears consciousness. She goes back to... Because in the first film, they accidentally dig up the body of Sarah Fears. Yeah. In, this, in 1978, they find out that the only way the curse can quote-unquote be lifted is if they... Re, they bring back the original hand of Sarah Fierce because one of her hands were cut off and bring it back to the body, reunite it, and then hopefully the curse will be lifted. You find out, not only is it not be lifted in 1666, in the final film, you find out that Sarah Fierce is not the reason for the curse. <laughs> it actually is a... F- <laughs> it's, it's a widower in 1666 who just wants you know, all the riches and wants to do his own thing. He wants prosperity. So he makes the deal with the devil. Yeah. And basically... He kind of uh, pins it on... Pins it on Sarah, Sarah Fears. Mostly because yeah. he catches her in sort of a lesbian... Yes. Uh, ...relationship with another girl in the town and sort of leverages that and the town's kind of, yeah. you know, old world mm-hmm. ways of thinking as a way of kind of pinning the whole thing on her and making her out to be a witch. So it's kind of playing into that classic uh well just i mean the reality of the time of the that era in colonial america where it was like oh this woman is different than other women and not obeying the laws of men uh must be a witch must be a witch burn (laughs) her hang her must be making a deal with the devil to be you know somewhat smart and have and you know oh my gosh yeah i do kind of i will say as a side note i'm really enjoying like the more modern takes on like the Salem witch trials and how it's yeah. like, no, those are awful because it was less about women being witches because they weren't and more the fact that it was just men taking advantage of just the power they had yeah. and finding anyone they could basically turn it against and make them seem like the bad guy, even though they're not the bad guy. Yeah. It's a really strong kind of real world, um, setting to mm-hmm. apply kind of you know modern day feminist allegories to because that's i mean it's yeah. it was the same issue back then just more brutal and violent and horrible it definitely took a long time between this and the crucible to finally get back into the whole like the salem witch trials are 
you know, mainly just to get rid of women and not <laughs> yeah. not actually witches. But yeah. I'm glad we're back there to talk about how bullshit that time was and how awful it right, was for right. women. Yeah. And a good, a really nice idea that I think really works well in the 1666 segment of the final film is the fact that due to Dina basically being transported to see Sarah Fears's life leading up to her death, Dina actually takes over the body of Sarah Fears. So for that segment, Sarah Fears is played by the actress as played by the actress for Dina. And then because Dina's mind is in there, you see a version of Simon you know, who who would have been like the caricature of Simon back in 1666? Right, you just get all of the, all of the people that Dina knows, kind of, yeah. quote unquote, playing the roles of mm-hmm. these 1666 figures. Even we see like you know they bring back Sadie Sink and the actress for Cindy Berman and even Tommy yeah. for a role, which is fun. Uh, also from a viewer angle because then it's like okay, it's not a third set of characters that I have to get attached to. Yeah, these because are all. Yeah, faces I recognize because all the faces they they did a good understanding of having an understandable point of comparison to be like, if this actress who played Kate is playing this character, then that means she has to be very similar personality wise. And not only is she, she's technically the drug dealer of the kids in 1666 (laughs) because they have those rad berries. Right, right, right. And with Simon, it's the same with the guy with Simon's actor playing a character who's more progressive and more kind of like. We're just kids. There's we're not witches and we're not dealing with the devil. We're just yeah. being kids in the woods. Like Yeah. And in that segment in sixteen sixty six, it looks good. It uh it I mean it's the it's the drabbest of the three films, but also it makes sense because it's fucking sixteen sixty six. Yeah, I really it, it feels how very it was much like the witch. Visually. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um it's very much fits the vibe. And also I think it's a nice kind of it's distinct from the others. It absolutely is, yeah. Um I would honestly say probably 78 is the weakest visually just because it's kind of summertime, golden glow, yeah, lighting most of the time. Um, it looks good, but it also yeah, it looks, looks like looks what fine, you would expect. Yeah, yeah, right. And this is you know kind of a fun change of pace before we jump back to 1994 to get back to the kind of neon, mm-hmm. neon uh, kind of 90s aesthetic. Yeah. And it's, it's really... It is a nice contrast when it goes from 1666 to 1994 because it's like it's almost like whiplash when he gets sent back, because yeah. it also like, oh, is all like this color. <laughs> yeah, because not only is it like a, it's crazy to spend the first 40 to 45 minutes trying to figure out what happened to Sarah Fears in the beginning, when you find out who really did the curse, you also know that like the guy who plays the widow who created the curse and made the deal with the devil is the same actor and is the descendant of the sheriff we've been seeing for the last two films yeah and sheriff so good who's yeah kind of the i mean obviously he's the sheriff but he's kind of played coy about the whole thing so far yeah it's kind of like you know every time the kids the main kids dina and josh or whoever go to the you know precinct and they're like hey this happened and he's like, okay, well, give me your account of it. And they give him their account. And he's like, yeah, this I can't run the, with this story. Nobody's yeah, going to believe this. He kind of just immediately shuts it down. And you're like, hmm, who is yeah. this guy? In 94, he plays very much the, uh, we get prank calls all the time about, you know, the, yeah. the witch's curse and whatnot. So I don't, I don't believe you that, like, an undead killer has come back to life. And then in 1978, you discover that Ziggy 
had a love was Ziggy's love interest was Nick Good became before he became the sheriff. Only yeah. to find out in 1666 that he was groomed to be the next person in the line to keep the mantle of the devil's curse. Yeah, going. pretty much every and, every good yeah. man, good capital G and an E on the end, um, good man throughout time has kind of carried on this torch of yeah. maintaining the curse, mm-hmm. keeping people oppressed, and kind yes. of. Uh, cultivating success for themselves which i will say if there's any missed opportunity that i think is in 1666 that i would have liked to have seen it's the fact that nick good we know throughout the series has a brother who is the mayor of sunnyvale he also shows up as like an asshole who lives in sunnyvale in 1978 and in 1666 you're assuming that oh my god if nick is involved well, his brother's got to be involved, too, and someone else has to be involved. No, the film kind of implies that it's just Nick yeah. and that Will might have known but didn't say anything about it and is, like, by the end of the film, Will just, like, they do that classic, like, politician or celebrity who's, like, caught in a scandal, doesn't want to be seen with pictures, like, putting a hand in front of the camera's face <laughs> as it's, like, ex-mayor Will Good now right. and bad standing. And it's, like, okay, I guess he didn't know. Yeah, it would have been really cool to see more of how... Yeah how the mayor brother was because I was really it all. I genuinely thought that it was going to be Will like it was trying to do a red herring with Nick because yeah. Nick felt too easy yeah. but then you get to 1666 and I think what kind of subsides the easiness of Nick being that is the fact that the actor who plays Nick plays uh, Solomon Good and he who plays... very much seems like the only guy who's on Sarah's yeah. side the whole time, and he does a really good job. Yeah, the, the actor who plays and Nick does a really good job. Honestly, throughout. honestly, Solomon Good, the 1666 Good, is maybe a more interesting and compelling character with a more interesting turn. Oh, he absolutely than is Nick Good, the yeah. modern day one, because. Yeah, that that's probably my biggest detractor on 1666 is that. Uh, Nick or 94 part two rather is that Nick good is not that compelling of a villain. No, um, no, it's also it kind of telegraphed by that point. Cause you know, halfway through that third film, yeah, we know Nick goods, the villain. So it's kind of like, well, mm-hmm. I guess we just have to kill him now. <laughs> yeah. I guess this is just what we have to do. And he and doesn't really, you know, I mean, he's not a charismatic figure. He's a very kind of shy, you know, He's uh, very reserved. Made a few words, and so it's like, well, okay, there's not a lot to play with here. He's just a mm-hmm. bad dude. He doesn't really have like a monologue to explain why he's still doing this generations he's after Solomon. Just like, I'm part of the pro- yeah. like part of yeah. the system. He's like, I'm I'm here. My my dad did it. My grandpa did it, and I'm gonna do it too. <laughs> That's how dad did it. That's how America does it, and it's worked out pretty well. So worked far. out pretty well so far. And it does kind of it is kind of a bummer too that like in 78 there is a good genuine chemistry between young good and ziggy and i was kind of hoping in 1666 we'd have a bit more time of them together and possibly like him trying to convince ziggy to get on his side yeah but in reality what happens is once he finds out that ziggy's in on it uh he just basically is trying to kill you the bus yeah Yeah, he basically goes dina i'm gonna i'm gonna let ziggy die if you don't fucking come out here and it's like well there goes that yeah, and he he's he's a solid villain, and I think at the very end when they finally he finally gets his comeuppance, it's worthwhile. It makes sense, and 
it's it's good. I, again, it's like no pun intended. I think overall, it's just like good has a has like a good finale to him in terms of like when you see him fight Dina because it's like the final confrontations mm-hmm. like in the catacombs of like this. I think it's like isn't well, it's it the, the the witch's circle? Yeah, the well, hell it's circle. The, uh, the turns out the mall, the shopping mall in '94, yes. was built on the same grounds of the campground in '78, which was also built on the same grounds of the original kind of colonial village yeah. in 1666. So it's all this multi-layered kind of thing. Yeah. So the the tree from which Seraphir was hanged is, is actually in the, in of the, the mall. It's in the courtyard <laughs> of the mall, um, which is which is hilarious. And that's probably one thing I'm gonna have to check. In ninety four, if they show that at all, if they show what? the tree, if they show the tree, I can't remember if they show the, the tree. First film? Yeah, I don't remember yeah, if they do. Pretty, do they? I'm pretty sure they do. Because I think that um, was like it caught me completely off guard in seventy eight when they go straight for the tree in the oh, mall. Right, right, right. It's like um, what the fuck? No, yeah, and well, the other funny thing. This is not a huge criticism. It's more of just a goofy fun fact. But like, it's kind of funny when you realize all of those things took place in the same spot because. In 66, that village, it looks and feels like very much a New England colonial pre-America yeah. village. This takes place in Ohio. <laughs> Shadyside, Ohio is a real town, and this is where that's where this takes place. Is that place. really supposed to yeah. take? <laughs> so it's like, why are we in the Midwest having a like a Salem-esque oh, town with that. witch trials? That's no funny. Europeans even like immigrated to Ohio until like the <laughs> late 1800s. Like. <laughs> That's what? great. I didn't even know that. That's wonderful. Yeah. I didn't even think so about it's just, that. So it's just that makes it much that much more silly when you realize that. But it's it's fine in the yeah. context of the story. Yeah, I think the silliest aspect to me is what you brought up earlier, where it's like the mall is built upon the camp, which is built upon Solomon's old house, which is <laughs> where the witch's circle is like at its epicenter. Right. And oh gosh, it is just a really fun finale. And when it gets to the end, like yeah, there's some certain aspects where it's like. In the first film, Josh is talking to somebody on AOL who is like the queen of darkness or something like yeah. that. And you don't really know who it is, and you're curious to see, like, oh, I wonder in the finale if we're going to find out and she's going to help out with them. It turns out it's another girl at his school and just, you know, knows about solid state drives in 1994 right, and has like yeah. a handle for AOL. Yeah. And- and just like writes it on his cast, and he goes, Boo! and just like yeah. goes after her. I really thought that the the person on the other end of the AOL chat was gonna be like a dude, the villain, or something. Or yeah, somebody. Like, yeah, because like, yeah. the there's witch, a, you know, because <laughs> there's the uh, is it Martin? Is that who the other the the janitor? Who the did, janitor Martin. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, in the first film. There's a janitor who's the only survivor at the Shady Side Mall when. Um, the kind of ghost face killer kills yeah, he's everybody. Yeah, the only the other one there. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah he's literally the only person who survives on accident, and so he gets jailed, gets accused of plagiarizing the or vandalizing the mall, even though it wasn't him; it was yeah. the sheriff, which is another <laughs> douchebag point to add on his record. Yeah. And then the second film, you never see Martin. And then the third film, they just literally come up to his house and go, "Hey, you want to kill the sheriff?" And he's like, "I'll get my coat." <laughs> yeah. And then he's just like, he's just muscle. Yeah, he's, he's just not, an he's extra really hand much. to help out, and the the finale, he's fun comedically. But oh yeah, he's a fun character to have around. But yeah, I really kind of thought we would get more like, oh, how is the janitor going to bring his? You know yeah. what he what does he bring to the table? But we don't really see that. It's kind of more just well, mm-hmm. he, he's an extra person to shoot super soakers filled with glow in the dark blood. Yes, um, the whole the whole plan at the end of the finale too. 
very much feels like it's war- like you just very much feel satisfied with watching all three because the finale plan to get Nick good is a amalgamation of the plans from part one as well as part two. Yeah. Because there's pranks in part two that never get fully realized when Ziggy is younger, but she gets to implement them with Josh's plans from part one yeah. to create something that's like really fun and silly and leads to some really good moments mm-hmm. overall. A lot of and, nice payoffs and hmm. kind of callbacks and stuff. I gotta, I gotta say too, just thinking about it, compared to like, I guess the other modern example we we have to this is like Captain Marvel, but like I feel like this is what how you do like a '90s nostalgia. Yeah, this kind of this thing. definitely does. I mean, Captain Marvel treats it as a very kind of just a surface level, like oh, this is when yeah. this is set. Mm-hmm. Here's some needle drops. Here's, here's a blockbuster. Oh yeah, here's this. just a girl at the worst spot. That's the worst needle drop I've heard in the last decade. <laughs> that was an awful needle drop. Anyway, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't mean to bring that um, out of you. I, that's what came to me first. I don't hate that movie, but I really hated that. No, needle drop. yeah, I get um, that. I get that. But uh, no, yeah, this definitely. You know, it, the the nineties ness is ingrained into it. Yeah, it it being kind of ninety four being a kind of riff on Scream also aids in that because scream is very much a product of that time yeah um and uh yeah it's it's definitely feels more ingrained in the setting actually i mean all three of them do 78 maybe the least just because it doesn't really commit as much to the slasher vibe as i thought it would but it definitely seems like with 78 just the whole camp idea that seems like the height of its prominence is there yeah and they don't have to like they don't have to show the the what it was what shitty side looked like in the seventies because right it doesn't yeah, really matter. We're just in that at the camp. And, yeah, yeah. It's, it's less about the era and more about just it's kind of like Friday the Thirteenth. <laughs> yeah, the era just very much feels like we got to get some more information about the witch's curse. We gotta we gotta do some more kind of like timeline stuff. Yeah. Well, and also once they kind of set the the timeline starting in 94 and then the 16 year gap then okay that locked them into 78, 78 so. yeah and they basically in 94 they just show what all the other killings happened prior to 78 so it's like <laughs> well if there's only one survivor out of all those mass murders i guess we should just do a film about 78 yeah <laughs> and by the end of it what you have is just a trilogy of films that is extremely well done is I think it just whether you think they're great or not, I understand not thinking they're great, but I think they're overall a great time. Yeah, they're a lot of fun, and I feel and like, I mean, I th- I feel like I I I accomplished something to a degree in terms of coming up with the plan of watching this with our girlfriends, because um, we we there were, there was another thing too we'll talk about later, but like when we finished 1978, it was late enough that we didn't have we didn't really want to watch 1666, but on the drive back, my my girlfriend was like. Uh, I kind of just want to watch 1666 right now. And like, we're not going to watch it without Emma and Andy. Okay, I get it. we got to wait. Yeah. Um, and, and speaking of our viewing experience, there's one thing we have to bring up because oh, we gosh. promised our girlfriends we'd talk about it. While we were watching 1978, while a brutal kill was happening. Right in the middle of a kill. Right in the middle of an axe swing to the face, our power went out. Yep. Your power my, went out. The pa- yeah, we were at my house. The power went out. No explanation. It just and it was just like away. oh, and both our girlfriends <laughs> just like it. I could feel my girlfriend just like tensing up, yeah, like getting in fight or flight mode. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and for like a good like what hour, hour and a yeah, half. Yeah, we were 
Yeah, we were out for like an hour at least. But it was it just felt so opportune. It felt like <laughs> yeah. it felt like one of the worst times and it was great that it happened. Yeah. And uh yeah, just the viewing experience with just the four of us I thought was ideal, but I could see it being like a great like just six eight just like a huge group of people watching yeah. the film oh, it would be great just... for like a you know i mean at least you know speaking to teenagers it would be great for like a you know group sleepover party yeah absolutely um, it's not probably gonna i mean I, I guess it's it's good horror for kind of the uninitiated in horror people who aren't super horror heads yes um because it's not super scary it's not going to be having you you know check your closet when you go to bed or checking mm. under the bed or whatever. Um, it's not going to keep you up at night, but, um, you know, it has fun with the horror genre yeah. and it has a lot of nods to that. And kind of, I could see being kind of, for lack of a better term, a gateway drug into horror for young people or for yeah. people who don't watch a lot of horror. And I think it's accessible and that's really cool. Yeah. It'd be uh, a nice transition. Yeah. Piece, it's, like... it's, it's like, YA horror, but not as annoying and pandery and soft and polished as YA. It's it's, it's, it's got like, more grit to it. It feels like YA that teenagers would be down for, where it's like yeah. it's not it's less, not less like YA made by forty five year olds thinking they're making something yeah, good for kids, trying to make a PG thirteen film that like all kids can <laughs> see, and instead yeah. making a very sexually charged, gory film yeah. series that like. Has kids cu- cursing all the time. Has yeah. them talking, doing drugs, yeah. having sex. Yeah, just but like murdered. F- but feeling less goofy about it, at least in '94, and feeling more kind of like grounded in places. Yeah, and I feel like it's like genuine stuff that's really fun and seeing them. Yeah, just like it. Fe- it feels very much like oh, this this works really well. Yeah. Works a lot better than it has any right to. Yeah, honestly, it it kind of satisfies a similar vibe to, like, Stranger Things, but I feel like it benefits from not pulling its punches genre-wise and really being dark and kind of gross and violent and, um, you know, dealing with... It's one of those, I watch something like this and I just know a bunch of parents would recoil at it because there's drugs and sex and it's like, my teenage kids don't need to see that stuff your teenage kids are probably doing that stuff or if they're <laughs> well, not doing like it they're they've surrounded by kids they're, they're surrounded by that stuff like or that's they've part seen of shit like cult- that. That's yeah, yeah, yeah yeah like it's like that's part of teen culture even if you're not participating in it you're aware of it you know about it you yeah like, probably looked it up on youtube yeah like or google or whatever like i get that at the same time as being adults thinking like my my child my my teenager shouldn't know anything about this yet or talk yeah. about this at the same time, though, you got to think about when you're a teenager and realize, oh, wait, this shit was kind of all over the place, too, and I'd seen this. And, like, I mean, when I was a teenager, just, like, watching Skins and, like, yeah. any like American Pie films, like, I got a hold of those and, like, oh, any yeah, kind of, like, yeah, watchy yeah. comedies. No, yeah, I feel the same way. I just, just, like, I'm just always for movies or media that are aimed at teens or young people from a messaging standpoint, yeah, but don't hold back in terms of the subject matter that they yeah, deal they, with. Yeah, they don't feel like they don't you know, feel like they're saying not, teens are dumb, but at yeah, the same it's not time, it's rounded like, off and yeah. and cutesy. It's it's real deal. It has a nice kind of it has a nice motif about uh, hopelessness turning into optimism and just like f- yeah. hope for the future. There's obviously a lot like, of really great positive uh, yeah. 
LGBT messaging. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, the central really... the central relationship is a lesbian relationship, and it's yes. very much tied into the sort of what Sarah Fear went through and how her mm-hmm. you know mistreatment in her yeah. time was very much tied to her sexual orientation. And I do think the fact that in '94 Dina Dina has a bit of a kind of like a resentment and a tad bit of hatred for the fact that her ex Sam left Shadyside, went to Sunnyvale, and is dating a guy when obviously she isn't into men. And it feels right. very much, to a degree, it does have that air of, like, this is a weird, like, it could be kind of toxic kind of relationship yeah, right Dina there. Yeah, doesn't necessarily seem... She's definitely not being fair. She's not yeah. being fair, and she's definitely just full of angst to an obnoxious degree. Yeah. But I think what's great in 1666, it's very... They don't really say it outright, but it feels like the fact that Dina has to go through Sarah Fears' life and makes it kind of go, oh, they had it so much worse. Right. Like, I'm just glad I can kiss my girlfriend and not get hung for that. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it feels like she gets a great amount of perspective when I think in she also learns to appreciate Sam's perspective of why she's kind of afraid to own her yeah. sexual oh, orientation yeah. and be super public with it because... This, a similar thing happens with Sarah Fear and her love interest. Um, and you just kind of, you get to see more of both sides. So Dina gets kind of a greater perspective and that's nice to see. Yeah. And I, th- I feel like that's what makes her feel so much more adult and mature and determined in 1666. Cause I, I kind of understood cause like in your, I mean, Emma kind of had a bit of an adverse reaction to 1994 to certain elements initially. Yeah. And I think she over time. warmed up to the trilogy yeah. as it went. And I and I kind of understood why, like, one of the things she said where it's like, I she wasn't a huge fan of Dina being the protagonist. Uh-huh. Felt like she was probably a bit undercooked, which I do think she probably yeah. is. I mean, I think, yeah, both a tad. their yeah. relationship is definitely a little yeah. undercooked through the whole thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it definitely gets better, but I think that's I, probably I do, a yeah. detractor. I do think in 1666, that's when... They, she gets really good because I do love the fact that she's the one who has to go through Sarah Fears's tri- like trials right. and tribulations, and comes out of it a better person and more optimistic and more determined. And that's when I was like, when I saw 1994 Part Two, I was like, I'm so glad Dean is the lead in this yeah. case because I feel like she's gonna kill it <laughs> and she's gonna rule it. And yeah, it's just overall Fear Street has no right being as good as it is, as fun as it is, and just overall has a genuine amount of good fun horror to it that makes i think any fan of the genre whether slasher or no could get some enjoyment out of it as well as kind of like appreciate what lee jeniak and the writers and everyone around it has to it yeah and so i think like out of all the of all the trilogies that could have just dropped into our laps i'm so glad (laughs) yeah i'm so glad it was this one yeah it's a lot of fun yeah it's just really cool to have something out this quickly almost immediately bingeable yes oh um, my god that's still in the film format um yeah the feature film format and not tv just because kind of like i said earlier i could have seen this gotten milked for like a 10 episode season Mm -hmm. and it just would have wouldn't have worked i mean real Uh, talk i i do think that would be interesting if they try this again but has no tie to sarah fears they try a new type of trilogy that's kind of fear street-esque and give like another director a chance to build the story from the ground up because i feel like that's make it an anthology yes trilogies yeah i don't i don't want a stranger things situation where it's like as much as i don't hate where stranger things has gone i do think it's very clear 
that an anthology type scenario would have been a bit Better. more interesting. Yeah. And yeah. I really and, hope to. I mean, because also Fear Street, I, I kind of want them to do fucking werewolves. Maybe some vampires, maybe cool. some classic monsters, but like yeah. you could really in a get teenage creative sense. with the violence there because this yeah. was kind of all knives and axes. <laughs> yeah, and it would be fun to kind of see whether some I monster think monster stuff. Yeah, because I think Fear Street, there's a lot of like, uh, there's a lot of like, oh, it was a killer, you gotta stop him, oh. and they're coming at you. Like oh no, Scooby Doo stuff. Yeah, maybe. I mean, there's a, I think there's a subsection of Fear Street that's just like the Fear Street cheerleaders. Oh, so yeah. maybe you can make yeah. a good trilogy about the Fear Street <laughs> cheerleaders. I would be fucking down. Sure, yeah. I think after this trilogy, I would be down to see if they gave it another try for like three films in three weeks or, you know, yeah, a film I, a week I would and love whatnot. for them to stick to that instead of going yeah. to their original plan of the one per mm-hmm. month. Or but if, they, if for some reason they decide that's the better option, I would probably personally think it would be better to have a film between three months at a time. Mm. With like, I think it would be cool to have like one film, the last film, come out in actual October, like oh, kind of yeah, having yeah. something like that where yeah, it's like set up for Halloween. Yeah, kind of have you have a film come out in July, you have a film in April, and then you have a film in October, kind of like like tying it all up together. Yeah, especially with nowadays nowadays too, if the if the right company gets a hold of it, you could have all those first two films already on like streaming and kind of DVD right. by the time the third one comes out. Yeah, but at the same time. It as it is now, it fucking rules. I think, thank God, Netflix figured out like the best way to handle this. Yeah, <laughs> and be interesting to see if, if and when they do more. Yeah, you know, with this first one having, despite kind of seeming like a Netflix production, having very little influence from Netflix beyond just when and how it was released, because it was already yeah pretty much done by the time netflix bought it um it was yeah it was it was already done it was i think it was, it was already kind of like put a, together and everything a, yeah it was a fox and churnin entertainment churnin yeah um and then fox sold it to um netflix when the disney buyout happened and you know there is kind of an odd oh my god like can you imagine if this had been a disney distributed it, thing it would have like, been it would have been 20th been chuck- century studios yeah would have it would like, have been would shoved have been, out there. Yeah, it would have been shoved out there, or would it have been like chopped down or something? Oh my god, that, um, I'm so glad Netflix got it then. But it's also interesting because I think a similar thing about okay, what would the next Fear Street look like? Because that would actually be produced probably by Netflix, and it's like, would that be a good thing? Would that be a bad thing? Would it change it at all? I don't know. I don't It'll know. Just be interesting to see. I will say though, in terms of what I've seen from like Netflix, uh, like series that start with netflix and kind of end with netflix i do think they're really good at keeping consistency yeah to a degree because like i think the only thing i could think of is like the uh to all the boys series that's all netflix only and like while i do think that second film's a bit of a wet fart story wise i feel like overall (laughs) it looks very similar it's a really tight production right It, it works really well and like I mean, even something that's like dumpster fire, like the kissing booth, like it makes, there's good consistency there for those people who like that trash. So it's like, Netflix does have consistency, it is, but I understand too, just like, what changes, if anything changes. I think if anything changes, if Netflix fully produces it, we might see more 
Netflix stars. Maybe yeah, that might be what they try. They which kind is, of are building up a back catalog of stars yeah. in their pocket that they can just plug into stuff. Mm-hmm. Which, in all honesty, if they pick the right people, like cool. Yeah. But if it's like the whole cast of Outer Banks, I don't <laughs> fucking care. It's, yeah, <laughs> don't it's do that. We're kind of almost returning, at least with Netflix and maybe some other studios, returning to, you know, the time in old Hollywood where actors yeah. were kind of tied. Actors and directors were tied to a studio. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of, I mean, yeah, it's, I'm curious to see, because, yeah, because Netflix still is getting pretty big directors tied yeah. to, like, streaming stuff. and Well, and Netflix and kind of maybe HBO Max, too, are kind of becoming the, the home for a lot of mm-hmm. uh, auteur directors who can't get the funding yeah. from a traditional studio. You heard about, we didn't talk about this earlier, but you heard about HBO Max, right? They just announced that in the next year there's going to be 10 HBO max only films that HBO is going to be producing. Oh, cool. So, so like, 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 like Netflix has done for the last yeah, few years. Like yeah. Full but like HBO, HBO max yeah. production. Cause That's I think cool, they've already, they've already announced really gotten much like that yet. Yeah. Cause I don't know if fat girl that just got casted is HBO max only, but I do think blue beetle might be. Oh yeah. And like yeah, yeah. there might be other situations where like, it might be another kind of like you said, auteur like with Stoderberg, maybe there's other kind of auteurs that have films with them oh, and right. whatnot. But yeah, with, with fear street, it'll be really curious to see this model doing well enough. Will other companies try to do the same? Yeah. And, which and in that case, I don't know what maybe, I mean, it, it could be, honestly, that could be a cool thing. This, this, trilogy could have paved the way for you know a new format type of rather than okay it's either a movie or a tv show or a single season kind of mini series thing how about an an all at once trilogy of feature films all done by the same people like yeah that would be really cool to me because i i mean this is a me thing i think but i personally prefer the feature film format over like long form television that's not an absolute rule. I just think no, yeah. a lot of stories, many, maybe the majority of stories that writers want to tell can be told efficiently and well and effectively, if not in a single film, mm-hmm. then in a couple films or a few films and keep it yeah. nice and tight rather than like Netflix has a tendency to do, like many cable TV shows have a tendency to do bloat the season with a bunch of Mm -hmm. episodes that don't really matter that much yeah and i I think hopefully with situations like with hbo and their chernobyl miniseries i mean the watchman miniseries Mm -hmm. i mean even with disney plus the fact that loki only had six episodes and and, and honestly yeah disney plus is definitely kind of pushing that line between television and movie yeah because because those the three marvel shows feel probably loki more than the other two feel like kind of a marvel movie just cut up into pieces yeah especially with the budgets yeah yeah yeah. which is what i'm very curious if it's or i don't know if it's already out now i didn't check i figured it was so early on it was still pretty fresh i didn't think it was out i'm curious to see if all three of these films were the same budget oh yeah like if it was like if it was like a solid like where all three of these films like a 30 million dollar and then it led to like 90 million well i know they were all produced I mean, they were all in production at the same time. Yeah. So maybe it was all, it was kind of a Infinity War Endgame scenario where it was all just lumped into the same budget. It could be. Kind of yeah. treated as one big movie. But yeah, but I'm still vastly curious to see like yeah. how that, how that kind of breakdown would be if we right. ever find out. 
But yeah, that's Fear Street. Uh, and there's not much else to say other than definitely watch it, give it a try. Yeah, it's, Out I of all like the odd it's trilogies, kind of the the dark horse film event of the summer. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's so get on it. Yeah, for sure. But speaking of dark horse trilogies of the summer, <laughs> it's time to talk about what we want to do next week. Yeah. <laughs> because we're back. We have another trilogy in mind for next week, and unfortunately, the consistency of the quality is not the same as Fear Street. <laughs> It is going to be, today is, what's today again, Andy? Uh, today's the 24th. 24th. Well, yeah, the, the day you're listening to this. Yes. Well, we always record live, the, we, we already we shot that in a foot live. earlier in the episode, Logan. Yes. No, I don't know what you're talking about. We've always, we always record la, live. La, la, la. <laughs> but um, on the, the 31st, yeah, 31st, we are going to have a trilogy in honor, quote unquote, of a film that came out the same weekend as 1666. Yeah, another big event film. Yes. We are going to be doing a trilogy surrounding the theatrical Looney Tunes films. We are going to be doing Space Jam, Looney Tunes Back in Action, and Space Jam, A New Legacy. Yep. We're going to be talking about the three films that are, whether good or bad, are the modern interpretations of what people think of with the Looney Tunes yeah. at the moment. The, the cinematic Looney Tunes. Mm -hmm. We're going to be talking about all three of those films, the gaps in between, because each one, I think, like, I think Space Jam and Back in Action, it's like a seven year gap. I think it's like 2004, and I think Space yeah. Jam is 96, so maybe like eight, yeah, years. eight years. And then 2004 to 2021, <laughs> yeah. we have a 17 year gap. Yeah. We're going to talk about, like, how much the Looney Tunes have changed in between those well, years. And how much, and, like, public interest in the yeah. looney tunes has changed and also just how the each cast is different like the yeah. looney tunes are just different in general in each cast yeah. and we're gonna be talking about just like as someone who's a big fan of looney tunes i'm i'm super excited to talk about the films but i also know what we're getting into <laughs> because if there's another thing that uh andy has not seen yet at the time of this recording i have already seen space jam 2 and this is going to be my second viewing of the film yeah, I've but andy it is going to be fresh when he watches it. Yeah, so I've seen Space Jam, the Michael Jordan film, yeah. but I've not seen the other two. Yes, and it's going to be curious to see what he says about Space Jam 2. I will have plenty of alcohol prepared for yeah. the new legacy. But uh, tune Might in. Might be drunk when we record. Oh, maybe. <laughs> Unprecedented. Unprecedented, yeah. Of all the film trilogies <laughs> to have that, that would be the one. But uh, tune in on July 31st when we talk about the theatrical Looney Tunes trilogy. But until then, I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.